If you would, take your Bible and open to the book of the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 1. This summer, starting today, we're going to dive into the Old Testament, as has been our practice over the last few years, and we're going to work our way through the Old Testament book of Joshua. I am convinced, I mentioned this a little bit last week, that the Old Testament is still far too neglected among us, us especially, that we're the ones who say we believe in uh, the inspiration of Scripture, its inerrancy, its sufficiency, all these things. And yet, I feel like, and you may, you may be sitting there, you may be the exception of the rule of what I'm saying. By and large, we neglect two-thirds of that when we neglect the Old Testament. And we, we might be familiar with some big, big themes, big events. But sometimes that's not even because of our own careful study. It may just be that someone else taught it to us or we heard it in vacation Bible school or, or whatever. And you may recall, though, just the importance of this. You may recall Pastor Brian last week in 2 Timothy 3 uh, saying that when, Timothy, when Paul told Timothy uh, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for, for uh, teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that that first and foremost would have been referring to the old, what we know as the Old Testament. That would have been Paul's Bible because the New Testament was still being written. Um, nevertheless, uh, you know, it would, by extension, include the New Testament, but you see the, old, the importance of the Old Testament there. That's Paul saying that the Old Testament is, is breathed out by God, is profitable to us. He said in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Encouragement of what Scriptures? In first instance, they're referring to the Old Testament. What was written in former days, former to even Paul? Maybe the most clinching. Uh, our Lord Jesus shows us the importance of the Old Testament. He told the Jewish leaders in John 5.46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? For he wrote of me. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. Moses wrote about Jesus. Um, and not just Moses. Jesus told the two disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, 44, he said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law, the prophets, the writings, that's everything in the Old Testament written about Christ. Um, that's from Jesus' own mouth. And he indicted those same two men just a few verses earlier in verse 25, Luke 24, 25. Why did he indict them? For being, quote, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And to that, someone might say, but we're going to study Joshua. We're not studying the prophets. We did the minor prophets or two summers ago. There is a sense, though, that even though Joshua is, a, is a, an Old Testament historical narrative, an Old Testament historical book, it is still a prophetic book. Um, the late Old Testament scholar Alec Matir, and I recommend anything he ever wrote to you, he rightly and perceptively said that 
history in the Old Testament, history in the Old Testament is a declaration from God about God. And by the way, if you're jotting down that name, Alec, A-L-E-C, Motier is M-O-T-Y-E-R. History in the Old Testament, that would be Joshua. The history in Joshua is a, is a declaration from God about God. And therefore, I think Ralph Davis in his commentary on Joshua tells us that as you read Joshua, try to keep asking yourself the question, what is the writer preaching about when he tells me this story? He's not telling you, Davis says, he's not telling you the story only to inform you, although that is part of it. He has a message to proclaim, a God to press upon you. That's strong. That's how I want to approach this book this summer. First and foremost, what is God telling us about himself here? God is front and center in Joshua. And, and that's, as we have just seen, that's how Jesus taught us to read this book. Uh, what does it teach me about Christ? Where is Jesus in this book? So as we think and, and study our way through Joshua this summer, I do want to come away with a, with a good grasp of the Old Testament story. I want you to know what happens in Joshua and the, and the, and the historical reality of it, but not in such a way as we lose sight of its ultimate purpose, that is to preach the gospel to us. Um, in other words, as we watch Joshua in this story, I want us to see also Jesus. And that may seem out of place to you, but just consider um, something that uh, Paul said in Galatians 3.8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So the gospel is in the Old Testament. It's there. Um, and so we're going to try our best to see it in Joshua. This morning, I want us to get just somewhat an, of an overview of the book. Um, but do it in a way that kind of reflects, hopefully, what I just said. So if you're taking notes, here, is, here are the two broad divisions that I want to use to break down this overview and what I would like for us to see and focus on this morning. First, the first division is called the foreshadowing. The foreshadowing. And in calling it that, I'm drawing attention to the fact of what we just said, that this, this isn't just history. Uh, it is history with a forward purpose. It's a, it's a history with the end already written. It, it's preparing us and pointing us to something more and to something greater. And then under that heading of the foreshadowing, I'm going to try to hit on, on um, uh, the, major, the major themes that rise to the surface in Joshua. So under the foreshadowing, there are four things in particular that are prominent, and they are the leader, the land, the law, and the Lord. The leader, the land, the law, the Lord. All four of those things, very prominent in Joshua, all four of them foreshadowing something greater coming. The leader, the land, the law, and the Lord. Those are clearly the most prominent themes in the book of Joshua. And then the second broad division is the fulfillment. And here's where we'll get an idea, hopefully, and uh, broadly at least, and spell out how the message of Joshua is seen most fully in Jesus and in the gospel. So we'll lay out the simple 
historical story as it appears in Joshua in the foreshadowing. And we'll look at those same things from the vantage point of the rest of the Bible in the fulfillment, which I hope will also give us an idea about how we will approach our study through the book of Joshua week by week. I have never taught through Joshua, so this will certainly be a challenge for me, but I have no doubt for me at least it will be as rewarding as it will be challenging. We're going to look at several places in Scripture. Uh, most of them will in the, in the books of Moses right before Joshua, so have your fingers ready to turn in your Bible. Uh, so before we go any further and look at all this, all this Scripture, let's pray and ask God's blessing as we think about His Word. Oh Lord, as we look at Joshua this morning, as we have already, uh, have, as we've already considered uh, your word in Luke 24 and in John 5 and in 2 Timothy 3, as we're later not only going to look within Joshua, but we're going to look in Genesis and Exodus and Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of these scriptures that, that we will uh, lay our eyes upon. They are your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see the truth where we need to see it this morning and give us minds to understand it, hearts to embrace and love it, and wills to obey and believe all that it says. Give us all ears to hear. I pray, give me the help that I need to teach. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's, let's begin first by thinking about the foreshadowing and, uh, that we see throughout Joshua, primarily those four themes that I mentioned earlier. So if you're open to Joshua chapter 1, the book begins immediately throwing our attention on the leader of the people uh, of Israel. We're in the opening words confronted with the death of Moses, which is no small thing, I, I, I may go without saying, but if you want to know why it's no small thing, the death of Moses, for crying out loud, maybe just look back, maybe just one page in your Bible to the last chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 34, and just look what we see there in verses 10 through 12. There the writer says, and there has not arisen a prophet in sense in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So this is no slight thing when you read something like that to flip the page and you read after the death of Moses. Um, the Moses about whom Numbers 12.3 said, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. The Moses, as we saw in that, with whom the Lord knew and spoke face to face, as it were, on the mountain for 40 days, in the tabernacle when the cloud of God's glory, his manifest presence dwelling there with Moses, the Moses through whom the Lord performed breathtaking miracles and signs and wonders and the giving of the law. And, you know, the, yeah, the people 
if you know your Old Testament, you know that the people grumbled against Moses during the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. Moses himself grumbled. But no one questioned that the Lord spoke through and worked through Moses and dealt with Moses in a way that he didn't deal with the rest of us. And now this one was dead. I mean, just think about the fact that Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. That's like we've been slaves to some other foreign nation since 1591. Just let that sink in. And, 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 and Moses was the one, the first one since 1591, that the Lord raised up and literally actually led them out. It's almost impossible, I would think, for us to imagine adequately the mindset of the people of Israel, what it must have been to lose a leader like Moses. And now the task falls to Joshua. I love what John Calvin noted about this transition from the death of Moses to Joshua. Listen very carefully what, what Calvin writes here. He says, this suggests the very useful reflection that while men are cut off by death, and fail in the middle of their career, the faithfulness of God never fails. On the death of Moses, a sad change seemed impending. The people were left like a body with its head lopped off. While thus in danger of dispersion, in other words, what would happen to the people? Would they just be dispersed when Moses died? In danger of that, not only did the truth of God prove itself to be immortal, but it was shown in the person of Joshua as in a bright mirror that when God takes away those whom he has adorned with special gifts, he has others in ready supply, ready, readiness to supply their place. And that though he is pleased for a time to give excellent gifts to some, his mighty power is not tied down to them. But he is able, as often as seems good to him, to find fit successors and even to raise up from the very stones persons qualified to perform illustrious deeds. That would be Joshua. Well, who was Joshua? Well, this obviously isn't the first time that we meet him in, in Scripture. Um, you, don't, you don't come to a book of Joshua and go, well, who is that? Um, interestingly, we learn in Numbers chapter 13, verse 16, that his name was originally Hosea. Hosea. And Moses changed his name to Joshua. Don't know why. We're not told. I'm not going to speculate. But Moses is the one who uh, changed Hosea's name to Joshua. And Joshua became Moses' close assistant, uh, his right-hand man. And, and it's in that same passage, by the way, in Numbers chapter 13, it's in that listing of names where we learn his name was originally Hosea. It's that, that, he's in that list because he was one of the 12 selected to spy out the land uh, when, when they tried the first time. And uh, you remember the story? The 12 go and they spy out the land and jo only Joshua and one other. Which one? Caleb comes back and they only of the 12 have a good report. Um, uh, and, and, and they come back with a positive report, trusting in the Lord. 
the Lord who would, they believed would fight for them and they would be able to, uh, he would be with them as they go into the land. You know, and, and just thinking about that alone. Joshua, you see, you see things about Joshua in that positive spy report. You see, first of all, his courage, uh, his, his uh, courage in military matters. In Exodus chapter 17, Joshua is the one, is one who leads the people in battle against the Amalekites. But more than just his courage and his, his, uh, his military prowess, we see in that, just in that positive report, he didn't make that report because he thought, I'm a good leader. He didn't make that report because he thought, I'm trained in battle. We can do this. We got a lot of weapons. He said that because he trusted in the Lord to be with him and to fight for them. So in that good report, you see his godliness. You see his holiness. You see his trust in the Lord. And that's something we see in a number of other places about Joshua. Flip over to uh, Exodus chapter 33. Exodus 33. And this is a, a fascinating story. Um, just a glimpse at, at, at Joshua. And this is in Exodus 33, beginning in verse 7. It says, Now Moses used to take the tent, that would be the tabernacle, and pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting, or the tabernacle. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud that is God's manifest presence, would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And Mo, when Moses turned again, turned again into the camp, catch this, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So obviously when Moses went into the tent, we're led to believe Joshua went with him. And even when Moses was finished uh, speaking with the Lord and he left, Joshua stayed there. So Joshua loved being in the presence of the Lord. Flip over to Numbers chapter 11. And you have this story in Numbers 11 where the people are complaining and, and Moses, Moses has one of his many, Lord, if this is the way the people are going to be, just kill me now. I'll be a lot better. Um, but instead of killing Moses now, as Moses wanted him to do, um, the Lord said this. He said, look, I tell you, I tell you what, get, get 70 of the, of the, of the um, elders of the people, and I'm going to take some of the spirit that's on you, I'm going to put it on them, and they will help you lead. But you have this episode at the, near the end of that chapter where, uh, you know, notice like in verse 
24, middle of verse 24, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on 70 elders. And, the, and as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue to doing, doing it. Now, verse 26, now two men remained in the camp. Great names, one named Eldad and the other Medad. And the spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out of the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and, and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And who, who does something about it? Joshua. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses stopped them. Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all... The Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them, that which would be fulfilled at Pentecost. But you see in Joshua, even in his saying, stop on Moses. You, you just, you, you get, you don't think that Joshua's mean like that. He just wants things to be done right. He just, he doesn't want anybody being flippant about the things of God. And he says, he, it seems to him to be out of place. So he cares about wanting to do right, not only by Moses, but by the Lord. He stays behind in the tabernacle. He wants to do right by the Lord. Just catch this. Go back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. And just let's just read verses 12 and 13. This is when Moses is about to ascend the mountain for 40 days. And in, in Exodus 24, verses 12 and 13, we read, And the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. We always think about Moses being on that mountain with the Lord. Joshua was there with him. And because of that, by the way, Joshua is still up on the mountain with Moses and the Lord when the rest of the people are down telling Aaron, make us a golden calf that we can worship as our God. And they're committing idolatry. And it's for that reason because when that rebellion and that idolatry was going on. Joshua was still up on the mountain with the Lord. He, he wasn't implicated in their sin. He was not judged uh, like, the rest of the were, like the rest were. Hence, he and also one other, Caleb, did not die in the wilderness when the rest of his generation died. He was able to lead the rest of the people into the promised land. So Joshua was Moses' assistant. He was known for his courage in battle, but even more for his faith and his holiness in, in the Lord. We're also told prior to the book of Joshua of the transition of leadership from Moses to, to, uh, to Joshua, a transversion of leadership and authority. So once, once Moses was gone, that's what we read. So if you, if you want to, flip over to Numbers 27. I told you we're going to flip a bit. Numbers 27. Just notice some things that we notice about Joshua here in these passages about when Moses is gone, we will transition the leadership to Joshua. 
Numbers 27, beginning in verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority uh, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out. At his word they shall come in. Both he and all the people of Israel with him. The whole congregation will stop there. But you see right at the opening words in verse 18, Joshua, the son of, man, the son of Nun, was a man in whom is the Spirit. He was, he was spirit-filled as a leader of Israel. And then, just again, go back to Deuteronomy 34, the page before Joshua. And uh, you look at verse 9 in Deuteronomy 34. And Joshua, Deuteronomy 34, 9, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua, courageous in battle, full of faith, a holy man, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Just tuck all these things away, if you would. And this is why when you come to the book of Joshua, it's why all throughout the, the book of Joshua, we see the Lord intentionally exalting Joshua in the eyes of all the people. For example, in chapter 3, Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, right before they crossed the Jordan River, the Lord tells Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then once they had crossed the Jordan, miraculously, he says in chapter 4, verse 14, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in, in, in awe of Moses all the days of his life. This is a great emphasis in the book of Joshua. This God-ordained, spirit-filled, full of the spirit and of wisdom, this holy man leading the people into the promised land. And not only that, but there's a, then not just the leader, but there's an emphasis on the land itself that they're being led into. Really, this whole book is centered around, revolves around the land. Um, what land? The land that God had promised Abraham to give him back in, and to his descendants. Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Where? To the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, Paul said that's scripture preaching the gospel to us beforehand. But he promised to make his name great, to give him offspring that would become a great nation, and land. And that through those things a blessing would come to all the nations. Fast forward, and after Joseph, the people were, were, enslaved, were slaves in Egypt for 430 years, as we said. But through Moses, the Lord led them out of Egypt 
and they began journeying back to that land that God had promised Abraham. But as we've already noticed, they did not get there. They wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience and because of their sin. And here in this book that we're going to study this summer, Joshua is the one who leads the, the younger generation of those people who didn't die in the wilderness, leads them into that promised land. Like I said, the whole book revolves around that. Chapters 1 through 5, here's just a general breakdown of the book of Joshua. Chapters 1 through 5 are their preparation to enter into, enter into the land. Chapters 1 to 5, their preparation, and hence notice the emphasis in chapter 1, verse 13. Remember, that the, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. So it's not merely land, it's a, a place of rest, which, and I'm getting to the, to the rest of the, um, the outline in just a second, but this, is, this land that they're going to, that they're preparing for, is not just land. It's in, intended to be a place of rest, which, which shows you how this isn't just mere history telling. It's foreshadowing. Because rest... Rest is a loaded biblical term. The theme of land actually starts in Eden, not with Abraham. In the Garden of Eden, where upon completion of creation, what do we read? God rested with his people on the seventh day. So rest, in Bible terms, is not relaxation. Somehow, somehow that's where we, if we load all the meaning of Sabbath into the relaxation and not doing work, we've missed, is we've, we've, we're looking at a tree instead of the forest. Rest doesn't mean just relaxation. It means peace and fellowship and shalom with the Lord. Sin disrupted that in the garden, and the whole biblical story, literally until Revelation Chapter 22, where you find yourself in another garden, is, is this journey back to that rest with the Lord that was lost in Eden. And the entrance here in Joshua into the physical promised land was intended to be a picture of that coming rest with the Lord. More on that in just a minute. But chapters 1 to 5 is, is their preparation to enter into this land. Then chapters 6 to 12 are about the conquests to actually take that land. Most famously, these battles, the Battle of Jericho and Ai. I mean, just one right after another. Chapter 6 to 12, actual conquest. Chapters 13 to 21 are about how once they are in that land, how do we divide up this land among the 12 tribes of Israel? And then chapters 22 to 24 are about how then they're to live in that land. Not just how they divide it up, but once we're here, how are we supposed to live in this land? And on that note, we can transition to the third main focus in Joshua, which is the focus on the law. The law. You can see throughout the book of Joshua the focus on keeping the law of God so that they can, why? Because it's right but also so that they can know and enjoy uh, the rest that God had promised them in the land. That, that rest, on the one hand, would, just, would be achieved on a, on a small level just by their mere presence in the land and their enemies being gone. 
right? His chosen people in his promised land. But on the other hand, that rest would be incomplete without their living in that land in righteousness, in obedience to the Lord. Again, as his chosen people living according to the law of Moses, it would be incomplete without their obedience. And this is why, as you find, for example, in chapter 5, you can flip over there if you want to, chapter 5 in Joshua, I told you chapters 1 through 5, are there preparation to enter into the land? Well, in, what do you find in chapter 5? You have in chapter 5, right before they go into battle against Jericho in chapter 6, you have the younger generation being circumcised according to the law since their parents who died in the wilderness had apparently neglected to obey that command. And then at the end of that same chapter, in verses 10 through 12, you have all the people keeping the Passover feast. Uh, according to the law of Moses. Why? They are, they are trying to, to be holy before the Lord before they even go into battle. You have the people then, once they go into battle, obeying the word of the Lord exactly as, as they do battle. And, and you have in chapter 7 the consequences of disobedience graphically shown in the story of Achan. We'll, we'll see that in just a few weeks. And notice like chapter 11 ends. Chapter 11 sort of ends by saying, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. That's the, that's the first level of rest. And that's repeated at the end of chap, again at the end of chapter 21. Flip over to chapter 21. The very end of, chapter, of that chapter. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So now he gave them rest from their enemies. Now the question is, would they now enjoy the, the greater rest in the land by walking in righteousness and in holiness he being their God, they being his people. And hence, Joshua gives to the people the charge he gives to them in chapter 23, verse 6. Now that they are in the land, chapter 23, verse 6, be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. And in chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the Jordan and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the, nation, in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
the Lord had given them rest from their enemies, their physical enemies in the land, and the question remains then, would they then, now in that promised land, would they walk in obedience? Would they walk in righteousness and in holiness? Would they be His people in His place, gladly walking under His rule and reign over them? Which brings us to the last clear emphasis of the book, which is the Lord Himself. The Lord Himself is clearly the main character in the book of Joshua. It is his, it is his promise of the land and, and just, I mean, you even have Rahab, the prostitute in chapter 2, verse 13, saying of the Lord, for the Lord your God, he, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. So it's not just his promise of the land, it's his land. It's his presence that goes with them as they go into the land to take it. And it's his power that does battle for them when they take it. Wherever they go in the book of Joshua to do battle, the Ark of the Covenant goes before them. Joshua 3, 3. They are told in preparation to do battle. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it, clearly indicating the presence of the Lord is not just going with them, He's going before them. And that only in Him would they win the battle. And it was not only to go before Him, but notice the very next verse in chapter 3, verse 4. There shall, yet there shall be a distance between you and it, you and the, the Ark of the Covenant, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it. In order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So there, he's basically saying there needs to be a half a mile between you and the Ark of the Covenant. And he says so that you can see where it leads. And you can imagine if there's two million people and the priests with the Ark are like right there in front of them. The people in the back have no idea where to go. But if he's half a mile in front of them, they can see where they're supposed to go. But not only that, I don't think that that it's there just so they can see where to go, but so they can all very clearly see the Lord do those mighty acts and wonders with their very eyes before they even get there. They can see the waters of the Jordan stand up like a heap before they ever get there, right? And right before they, oh, this is great, right before they go to battle, against Jericho in chapter 6. You have the end of chapter 5, and there's this amazing account, seemingly out of the middle of nowhere, um, where you have at the middle of verse 13 that right, at, right as he's by, beside Jericho, it says a man, Joshua saw a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua's like, are you on our team? Or their team. And he's like, no. <laughs> I'm not on anybody's team. You're on my team, son. I'm not on your team. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Well, who is that? He said it was a man. Maybe it's an angel. I think again. Look in verse 15. And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is holy. What does that remind you of? The burning bush. Moses. So, 
just as the Lord did with Moses, so he's doing with Joshua. No mere man or mere angel says, take your shoes off. I believe this was a theophany, or better yet, a Christophany. Which, would, which is what? It's an Old Testament pre-incarnate appearance of Christ with his sword drawn to do battle on behalf of his people. And at every turn throughout this book, we'll see time and again throughout the book, we're told that, that those who, uh, even before they get there, you, you're going to see this over and over again. When Israel goes up to a place about to do battle on it, the people, before they even get there, say things like they do in chapter 5, verse 1. We heard, we've already heard, that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel when they crossed over. And their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit of them because of the people of Israel. They hadn't even showed up yet. The wonders of the Lord melted the hearts of the Canaanites with fear before the Israelites even showed up. There's other themes to be sure, in the book of Joshua. But these four themes clearly are front and center more than any others. And when we realize that the Holy Spirit inspired this book, not just to be the book of Joshua, but to be one book among 66 others, 65 others, telling one overarching story. And as we've already seen the Lord Jesus tell us that that story, that overarching story of which Joshua is just one chapter. That story is about Jesus. Then it's right that we understand how all of these things that we just talked about are not only true historically, but they are foreshadows looking for their fulfillment in Jesus. And so before we close, I do want to take just a minute and in very broad strokes, because I don't have time to do any more, and I'll say all that, I'll just give away the whole bag before I ever start the series. In very broad strokes, just try to give a glimpse of how all these things find their fulfillment in Christ. And of course, we'll be much more specific about this as we move through the book. Let's just get a glimpse here. When we look at these themes in Joshua, the leader, the law, the land, the Lord, it, it's clear that Joshua is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. What does that mean? It means he is a, Joshua is a divinely ordained person who in real time and space foreshadows something greater coming. But in a way that Christ would later exceed in every way. It's not just a one-to-one -one correspondence. For starters, they both have the same name. The Hebrew name of Joshua being the basis for the later Greek name, Jesus. But even beyond the name, Joshua himself, his own life and person, points forward to Christ in that, as we've already seen, he was full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, which we see later in Luke chapter 3 and 4 of Jesus. Joshua was zealous for his holiness and purity. These two guys are prophesying in the camp. I don't know if that's right. He was zealous for his purity and the honor of the Lord, and Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Joshua stayed behind in the tabernacle. Jesus stayed behind in the temple. But Jesus exceeds all these comparisons in that while the Lord went before Joshua, the Lord was Jesus. 
And not only did, did Jesus stay behind as a boy in the temple, but when, when Jesus said in John chapter 1, 2, 2, when he said, tear down this temple and I will raise it up in three days, John says he was talking about the temple of his own body. We've already noted, and, and we'll say more about it when we get to Joshua 5, but I believe that in Joshua 5, right before they go into Jericho, that was God the Son standing before Joshua in a theophany with his sword drawn to, to lead the people into battle. And where the, the people of Israel under Joshua, they did find rest from their enemies in the promised land. When we come to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4 Hebrews chapter 4 tells us they did not find rest in the ultimate sense that the Bible means of that term. In fact, the, in Hebrews chapter 4, we don't have time to carefully dissect that argument, but in Hebrews chapter 4, the author of Hebrews, he's reading the Psalms, and he's reading Psalm 95, and he notices that David in Psalm 95, way after Joshua, tells us that there's still a rest out there. God's rest is still standing out there for us to have and find. And he's saying, but I thought Joshua led them into the rest. And he reasons, Joshua led them into a lesser rest. There is a greater rest still to come. And he says, that's Jesus. And incidentally, Jesus comes along in Matthew 11 and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How can Jesus promise rest if none before him could find it? Because he alone kept the law perfectly on behalf of his people. And Jesus promises rest, not just for, for, for Jews, but for all who come to him in repentance and faith. Jew, Gentile and Jews alone, as the story in, of Rahab, the Gentile, in, Gen, in Joshua 2, foreshadows. And again, Joshua led them into a plot of ground between the bank of the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. That's, that's not the end of the story. We're not trying to get back to that plot of ground. We're trying to get into something much greater, ultimately a new heavens and a new earth. Whereas, notice the, notice the, the change that Jesus signals. Whereas Psalm 37.11, Old Covenant, 30, Psalm 37.11 says, The meek shall inherit the land. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5.5? 5, 5? The meek shall inherit the earth. Abraham is promised land in, uh, land in Palestine in Genesis 17.8. And Paul in Romans 4.13 says that through faith, Abraham would be heir of the world. The, the Greek word there he uses is cosmos. How so? Jesus says in John 8 that Abraham saw Jesus from afar and believed. And Hebrews 11 says that Abraham was all the while looking for a city, a greater city, whose, whose designer and builder is God. Everything we see in Joshua, as breathtaking and as remarkable as it will be, is simply a faint shadow of what we will find in the reality in, in Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, who is altogether righteous, who kept the law for us, and who leads those who put their faith in Him in His kingdom rest. That's the story of Joshua in a nutshell. Let's pray and then uh, we don't have time to do anything else. Sorry. Oh Lord, thank you so much for the book of Joshua. I feel like 
I, I, I skimmed the surface so much that we, I, I hope and I pray that we did not rush by so quickly that we feel like we didn't see anything. I, I hope that we were able in our minds as, we, as I prayed at the beginning to, to hold on to these themes that we see there and to think how true this story is how trustworthy the promise of Jesus is that 1,500 years earlier you orchestrated history itself to give us faint pictures of that greater reality coming. How amazing. So I pray that of those of us sitting here that as we walk out of this room, we won't walk out saying how amazing Joshua is. But how amazing you are, Lord Christ. And how precious your promises are. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.